himself. His glory is being put on display. We talked about this last week. If you're looking at the the purpose and the logical flow of Exodus, we come to Sinai and, and it's about his relationship with his people. It's about him drawing them near. God is saying, this is who I am. This is how you as my chosen people approach me. Come near to me. And I think Exodus 19, 4 to 6 could be like the the thesis statement of the law. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Notice the grace there. He saved them before they even had the law. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth is mine. You'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. To obey God's law is to draw near to God. And the way to draw near to God is is through obedience to his law. Now, certainly we see the glory of God in the law. We see our sin all the more clearly. We see our inability to draw near to God as we should. In fact, the more clearly we see the glory of God in it, the more clearly and inescapably and inexcusably we understand our sin and how it's so much more than just this moral checkboxes. But it's the revelation of who God is. The other thing we see as we understand the law rightly is that even in the law, God has been sowing seeds of grace right from the beginning, pointing forward to the one who would save us from the curse of the law. So turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 20, and we're going to spend our morning there, as I said, in these last six commandments. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, these fine gentlemen would love to put one in your hands. So just slip up your hand, and they will give you one. Uh, We want you to have God's Word open on your lap. Um, I have nothing of value for you. It's all about God's word. That's, that's all we have. And, uh, and, and you, shouldn't wanna, you shouldn't care what I have to say anyways. It's about God's word. So open your Bibles. Have a look. Exodus 20. We're going to look at verses 12 to 17. As I said last week, uh, the Ten Commandments break down into these two sections. We approach God through right worship. And the first four laws are related to how we worship the Lord, how we understand Him how we approach him in worship. And then we approach God through right relationships. And the last six laws are about how we interact with others, how we treat other people. But both alike are primarily about revealing who God is. So let's dive into these commands. And as we do, we want to be asking that question, what is the Lord revealing about himself? What kind of God makes this command? So with that, let's... Look at uh, the first commandment for us this morning, but it's commandment number five. Verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the only completely positive command, uh, and and it's significant that it's first in the second set. Um, The first command of how we relate to one another, how we interact with other human beings is Obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. We take this so lightly, but this is a big deal. A big deal. Kids, you listening? Teenagers, heads up. 
This is a big deal. Exodus 12, 17 uh, assigns the death penalty for breaking this command. Anybody glad that we don't do that anymore? Ezra? Yeah, me too. I'm with you, buddy. Um, Listen to this, this list of horrible sins that Paul gives in Romans 1. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents. Like, seriously? Yeah. Yeah, that fits in that list of sins. It's not out of place. This is not a small thing. So kids, pay attention. Grown-ups, we're good, right? Like we've made it through. We're off the hook. Well, the Bible does say a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. They start their own family unit. I don't think we necessarily obey our parents once we're out of the home, but honor them. I think that has longevity to it. Mark 6, or sorry, Mark 7 um, Jesus applies this command um, to, to caring for elderly parents. He's, he's doing battle with the Pharisees and he calls them out. They had come up with this rule that as long as you say that all of my money is kind of theoretically dedicated to the Lord, then I'm off the hook. I don't have to use any of it to help my parents. Uh, and, and Jesus calls them out and he says, no, no, you've, you've used the traditions of men to, to, to deny the command of God. And he, I think, is applying this command, honor your father and mother, um, to, to caring for parents uh, into their old age. So it applies here. And as Paul points out, uh, Ephesians 6, um, this first commandment comes with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may have long life in the land. My kids hear that all the time. Honor your father and mother and it will go well with you. This is God's blessing. Now we have to understand this. This promise here is given specifically in Exodus to the people of Israel, that if if they as a people would honor their father and mother as a people, they as a people would live long in the land that God had promised. And so I don't think we're right to to look at Ephesians 6.3 and say, boy, if you you obey your parents, you're not going to die young in a car accident. I I think you missed the point there. Um, He's using that picture of the land. That was God's consummate blessing to them. And he's, he's using is that, that symbol, honor your father and mother, and God will bless that. He'll honor that. He'll bring good to you. But remember how Jesus uses the Ten Commandments. We, we looked at this a bit last week. We're going to spend a lot of time doing this again this week. Jesus interacting with the Ten Commandments shows that that it's not just to be taken this kind of strict technical sense. We live in this real kind of uh, it's cookie cutter Western mindset. We like the legal thing. Um, they didn't necessarily think that way. And if you look at these laws, they're so vague. And, and commentators just run amok with this. Um, do not murder. Well, define murder, right? Do not commit adultery. But there's a thousand little loopholes and technicalities that need to be dealt with here. These laws need, need thousands of pages of definition and, and case law, if we're going to go with them, if we're going to impose these or, or, or somehow uh, enforce these in any way? Or do we miss the point? We've forgotten what it's about. It's the Lord saying, this is who I am. This is my character. And so 
Jesus takes don't commit adultery and he says, not, not a technical sense. Not just that, but he's saying God hates adultery. That's the kind of God that he is. And so everything that moves in the direction of adultery is out. It's done. It's off the table. To the point that Jesus says, even lusting after a woman in your heart is breaking that command. So what are the broader implications of honor your father and mother? How do we, how do we take that command the way Jesus does and understand what, what's everything that's kind of this cloud around it that we ought to understand? Well, I think as we look at this, father and mother is the most basic institution of human authority. God is saying, honor the authorities put above you. Beginning with your mother and father, but not limited to. I think it's rooted in the fifth commandment that Paul in, in Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So honor your father and mother calls us to honor all human authority. Under the Lord, of course, honor your parents in the Lord. And, and when, when human authority and the Lord disagree, we obey God rather than man. That's, that's clear. But as far as we're able, we're called to honor every institution of authority that's placed over us. Do we scoff? Those greedy cops with their speed traps. It's just a cash cow. Not when Nick's around. Um, do we maybe kind of keep my tips off the books or fudge the numbers just a little bit? Because you know what? No, I don't want to pay all of those taxes that I rightly should pay. How about this one? Do we join in making fun of our prime minister? Oh, that stings. I don't have to agree with him. In fact, I can, I can loudly disagree with him. But he is only in that position because God ordained it to be. And I have to honor him. Really? We have to go that far? Hey, Paul wrote this under Nero. But to dishonor the authority above us is to dishonor God who put him there. See, we, we say in the, here in the corporate world, the poop runs downhill. Honor runs uphill. As we honor the authority above us, we honor the Lord who put them there. What kind of God makes this command? Well, it's the God who holds all authority. The God who is sovereign over all and holds it all in his hands. The God who is unequivocally demands that he is honored rightly as he should be. But, but more than that, the God who is worthy of all honor, God who deserves it. Revelation 4.11, the angels of heaven, along with the rulers, they throw down their crowns, their symbols of authority, and they cry out, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. He's worthy of all honor. How short we fall. How often by our pride, by our sense of independence, do we dishonor our Heavenly Father? Thinking that we know better and, and we can somehow break out against the authorities that He's placed there. 
failing to honor your father and mother, failing to honor every human authority that is rightly established, is to fail to honor God. Because God is the ultimate authority and He is worthy of ultimate honor. So honor your father and mother. Moving into commandment number six, you shall not murder. Simple as that. Hebrew, uh, it's literally two words. This one gets the critics going. God says, do not murder. And then he wipes out the entire Canaanite people. What kind of wicked, inconsistent God is this? How dare he? He breaks his own laws. Well, first of all, God is not inconsistent to say that we may not do something that he very well may do. We do that all the time, right? My six-year-old son, Elijah, has no right to drive the van. I do. That's a good rule in our house. But it also misunderstands what murder is. Um, The old King James um, maybe adds a little bit of confusion. Uh, It it takes this word, ratzach, and and it translates it, do not kill. Um, But that's not quite right. That's just a little bit vague. That's not what ratzach means. Ratzach means to, 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 to kill wrongly for selfish purposes. That's the way it's used consistently. It's not do not kill, it's do not murder, and, and the two are different. And so the Lord does command Israel to wipe out the Canaanites in, in this very unique God-ordained war of, of judgment. He does command, Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. That's the death penalty for murder, but that's not murder in response to murder as the right authorities apply justice. So the command isn't do not kill, it's do not murder. So we need to, we need to narrow that properly, but let's not be too narrow. What is abortion other than wrongfully taking a life for selfish purposes? There's no way around it. What is euthanasia? This, this, the quote-unquote merciful killing of the elderly or the disabled other than wrongfully taking a life for selfish purposes. But that's not, that's not selfish. That's mercy. That's, that's kindness. It's done for their good, for their comfort, to end their suffering. But isn't it still selfish even on their behalf? That's hard. I know that's hard. I've been there. But even to take your own life for selfish purposes is to disobey this command. Now, I understand that's that's a difficult place to be. And and let's just be clear, when you get into when is it ending life and and when are we just kind of mechanically sustaining life that's that's ended, that's messy and, and, and there's no clean answers there. That's a hard question to answer. And I want to be gracious here, these are not unforgivable sins. Abortion is not an unforgivable sin. It's sin that, that is covered by the cross of Christ, can be totally wiped clean, separate as far as the east is from the west. For those who will repent and come to Jesus in, in faith and seek mercy at the cross. But it's sin. And of course, Jesus expands this one for us. Matthew 5, 21, 22. You've heard it said, 
to those of old, you shall not murder. He's talking about these 10 commandments right here. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. It's not just murder in this narrow sense, but everything moving in that direction. And Jesus goes so far to include hatred and anger. And I've had people say to me with a straight face, no, I've never hated anyone. And I can only imagine, I can only conceive of them saying that if they've convinced themselves that hatred is this extreme emotion. It must be this horrible, consuming hatred so far beyond what my pure heart has ever experienced. I've never had hatred. But Jesus says, if you've even said to somebody, you idiot, you've broken this command. It's right there. We're guilty of this. All of us, that's the point. So what kind of God commands this? What does this tell us about the the character of our Lord? Far from the angry destroyer depicted in the Old Testament, or sorry, wrongly depicted by many as the Old Testament God. He's the God of life. He's the God who not only has the right to give and take life, but he loves life. What a great God we have. And yes, he will will judge all evil with all of the wrath that it rightly deserves. But listen to Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, declares the Lord, as I am the living God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his wicked way and live. That's where his heart is at. That's what he delights in. This is the glory of God on display. He's worthy of all honor. And he's the giver and lover of life. And then number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Another command far too simplistic, according to many. Adultery speaks specifically of breaking the marriage bond. And and so um, this does not explicitly rule out premarital sex or, or any number of other practices. But then again, as we watch Jesus interpret this command and understand what's kind of behind it here. He shows us how to, how to handle this rightly. And he says in Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. People talk about the Bible and how narrow and how condemning and restrictive it is when it comes to homosexuality. They don't even scratch the surface of how narrow and restrictive the Bible really is. It doesn't just condemn homosexuality. It condemns every form of sexuality that is not one man and one woman in the loving confines of a marriage covenant. Even lust is out. So yes, homosexuality is sin. But so is heterosexual sex outside of marriage and and pornography and self-gratification right down to daydreaming. Does the Bible condemn homosexuals? Yes. Right alongside me. Right? Can any of us read this list and say we're free? I think that's helpful for us as a church. 
Like we need to have a little bit of correction there. Um, the North American church got so caught up as, as homosexuality became the, the norm and, and laws were being pushed through and, and we made this stand. No, this is sin and we fought so hard for it. I think at some point we forgot that it's just sin. Not that sin is to be taken lightly, but it's not more than sin. So people have asked me, what would you do if a homosexual person walked into your church? What do you do? And, and I just get to say, friend, sinners walk into our church every Sunday. That's the whole point. In fact, we are a church exclusively for sinners. No righteous person need apply. This is a gathering of sinners saved by grace. But sinners... Now, we're also in the business of making disciples, of calling sinners to repentance and faith and growing obedience to Christ. And so if you're not on that journey, you're going to start to feel some friction over time. But we're a church of sinners, saved by grace, and there's always room for more. Back to the topic at hand. Who is the God who commands against adultery? The breaking of the marriage covenant. He's the God who is perfectly unblemished in his faithfulness. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. The son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. He is absolutely faithful, trustworthy, without a shadow of turning to fulfill his promises. That's exactly why adultery and divorce are so serious. God depicts himself as a husband to his people and how he cares for them, how he's faithful to them. And think about what that means. We tend to get the cart before the horse here. That means that God created marriage for the purpose of pointing to this relationship. He didn't hijack it. That's its, that's its purpose. And so when we are faithless in our marriage, we're lying about who God is. We're, we're corrupting something that was meant to picture his faithfulness. God is completely dedicated to his people. He will keep every promise. He will be unfailingly faithful. And so we approach him. We, we draw near to this God as we walk in that kind of faithfulness, certainly toward our spouse, but in general. Are we faithful people? Are we trustworthy? Faithfulness to your spouse, current or future, or faithfulness to purity in the absence of a spouse. He's the faithful God. And we ought to be so grateful for that. We've got three left. We've got to move. Number eight, you shall not steal. Verse 15. Some have pointed out this command validates uh, the whole idea of personal ownership and property. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I think they're on to something there. Um, we live in this world of entitlement. Uh, everyone believes they, they simply deserve whatever it is they desire and, and that certain things that, that they just want and demand. 
And, and there are certain things that you don't have and you have no right to have, and we just need to be okay with that. Um, I think sometimes we get so focused on teaching our kids to share um, that, that we teach them to expect everyone to share with them at their demand, and I think that backfires. But as we move into the New Testament on this, Paul gives us a, a fuller perspective of, of you shall not steal and what that fully entails. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 He says, let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The opposite of stealing is hard, diligent work that produces something of value with the purpose of being generous, of giving. That honors the Lord. Why? Because it reflects his image, his character, his glory. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. As we get into Exodus 34, and, and the Lord declares his name to Moses, and he, and he holds Moses in the, the cleft in the rock, and, and the Lord says these words will be repeated continually throughout the rest of the Old Testament The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and listen, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's generous. He's not stingy. He's not closed-fisted. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Draw near to God through right relationships with one another. Do valuable work. Do it well for the glory of God. And rather than stealing, rather than taking from others, be generous to share with those in need. It's how we live rightly with one another and so approach this generous God that we serve. Brings us to number nine. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Simplified versions, you might just read, do not lie. But the specific command here, Uh, is lying in court as a witness against somebody. Um, This was hugely important for Israel. You can imagine their their judicial system couldn't pull up the security camera footage, um, couldn't check fingerprints or or DNA records. They didn't have it. They relied on witnesses. Did you see it? He saw it. Did anyone else see it? So it was a serious thing. And any, any serious accusation had to be verified by two or three witnesses. And a false witness who claimed to see something he had not or claimed not to have seen something he did undermines justice. It it destroys the the fabric of their society. But of course we know that this command is about more than just that. Ephesians Just before Paul addresses the eighth command, do not steal, he actually addresses the ninth command. In verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. It has to do with the fact that we're united together. We speak truth to one another. So the command, do not bear false witness, is fulfilled as we live in truthfulness, in honesty in all things. That's not easy. And I get it. Not every lie is on the same level as as perjury in a court of law. Not every lie will have the same uh, 
the same effect as, as putting an innocent man in jail or letting a guilty man go free. But all lying is ultimately destructive. It's destructive to ourselves. It's destructive to our relationships with one another. It's destructive to our, our relationship with God. We lie to protect ourselves. We lie to embellish a story so that others just feel a little bit more impressed by us. We lie sometimes with malice against someone to hurt them, or we maybe lie to protect someone from a truth that we think might hurt them. And sure, we can have theoretical conversations. Is it ever right to lie for the purpose of saving a life? But let's just be honest, that's not the situation we find ourselves in day after day after day. We lie for selfish reasons, and we lie because we do not value the truth, which is to say we don't honor God. We are never more like Satan, who is called the deceiver. We're told that lying is his native language. We're never more like him than when we lie. And though you might tell yourself that this or that maybe doesn't quite qualify as a lie, or I have have good reasons here or there, You know what it's not? It's not the truth. It's destructive to our relationships with one another and to God. Because God is the God of truth. Deuteronomy 34.4 says, uh, God is the God of faithfulness in the ESV. uh, That very well could be translated the God of truth. Those are similar uh, meanings to the same term. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. This has huge implications, by the way, for this book sitting on your lap. God is the God of truth. He speaks truth. He cannot err. He cannot lie. When he writes a book, we can trust it because he's the God of truth. And we honor him, therefore we we draw near to him as we put off falsehood and we walk in radical truth. You see this grand picture of this glorious God coming into focus. The God who is worthy of and demands all honor and respect. The God who, who gives and loves life. The God who is impeccably faithful and trustworthy. The God who is abundantly generous and the God of truth. Finally, we we come to commandment number 10, verse 17. This is the one that Paul, if he was speaking today's language, would say, this is the one that wrecked me. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. To covet. In, in English, as I understand it, it has kind of negative connotations. That's a bad thing. The Hebrew word here is simply desire. Uh, it's often used in positive ways to desire God or desiring the Messiah. Um, it's not a negative word. It's the context. Just like this idea of hatred, coveting is not some particularly strong obsession. It's just a desire, but it's a desire that's placed in the wrong direction. It's desiring Wrong things, things that are not yours, things that you have no right to. Being discontent with what you have, wishing that you had what your neighbor had. 
doesn't matter what it is, his house, his wife, his car, his job, his holiday. It's discontentment. This command is unique, and this is, I think, why Paul says this is the one that nailed him to the wall, because it's the first one that just goes right for the heart. The others all have some external peace to them, some visible obedience that people can see, something you can, you can do. This command is all about the heart. And I think it's here at the very end as a bit of a, a signpost to say, don't think God just cares about the external. Don't, care, don't think he just cares about what your fingers do. God judges the heart, the motives, the desires, of course, as we're tracking with how Jesus uses these commands. We've seen that all the way along. But I think it's here saying, now go back and look at the last nine commandments and check yourself again. Did I not just keep the letter of the law, the technical sense of the law, but did I keep the heart of the law? Was I all in obeying the law from the heart? It's exactly what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5 as he's bringing the law out to the Pharisees saying, you, you whitewashed tombs. You've, you've done this shell. You've put up this pretty facade, but inside you're rotten dead men's bones. The heart of this command is so serious because discontent is a direct attack against God. We don't see that right away. We, we tend to live pretty comfortably in discontent. Oh, man, my kids seem to love commercials more than they love than whatever it is they're watching. Look at all this neat stuff we could have. Oh, if only I had that. That would be great. Look at Colossians 3. Verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Covetousness is idolatry? Like, really? So, so saying, man, I wish I had that boat, is on the same level as worshiping an idol. Like that escalated kind of quickly, didn't it? Are we really going there? Yeah, it is. Because it's looking to something other than God to find our joy, to find our hope, to find our satisfaction, our fulfillment. Saying, really, God isn't quite good enough. I need that. Then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied. That would do it. God isn't enough. He hasn't given me enough. I need something more. So think about this. I think this is amazing. What kind of God dare make this command? The kind of God who is enough. What a confidence. What a hope we have. The kind of God that is the satisfaction for our souls that we so desire. The God who is joy and life and fullness and blessing. Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses, you make known to the paths of life in your presence. There's fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amazing. That's the kind of God that can make this command. That's the God who's introducing himself here. We approach this God as we look to him and expect from him fullness of joy and satisfaction for our souls tell you, I wrestled hard with this when I first started in ministry. 
I was talking with my dad about it just Friday night as, as I was working on this sermon. I, I love to go hiking and exploring. There's just there's something unbeatable about coming to the end of 10, 11, 12 hours of, of, of grinding up rocky trails with three days of gear and, and food on your back and to stand at the top of that mountain and look over hundreds of miles of peaks covered in snow and alpine valleys dotted with delicate flowers. It's, 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 it's unbeatable in this world. I love it. How do you do that when you're 20-something years old and you work every Sunday? Hey, guys, let's go backpacking Monday through Wednesday. Any, uh, never mind, I only get one day off. My dream died. I, I, this is what I want to spend my time doing. That's what I love, and I, and I can't. Now, I love the ministry. That's, that's what God had called me to. That's what I wanted to do as well. But, but what about that dream? Is that dead now? I started feeling like I'm missing out. I'm going to get to the end of my life and I won't have accomplished the things that I want to accomplish. I won't have seen and enjoyed the things that I want to enjoy. My dad's on the other side of it right now. He retired a few years ago, but because of just ridiculous and endless injuries and health complications, he hasn't been able to get out. He hasn't been able to live the things that he spent the last 30 years working, looking forward to that day when I retire to do this and this and this and this. And now he's stuck in a chair with chest pains that nobody can figure out and he can't do anything. What do I do? These are supposed to be the, the glory years. These are the best years of my retirement fading away. The, the end is next and I'm missing it. It's gone. Discontentment creeps in. Fear presses in. Am I going to come to the end of my life not having accomplished the things I wanted to accomplish, not having done and, and seen and experienced the things that I wanted? What is that in your life? Travel, maybe? Oh, if I could just see the world. Spouse? That's all I really want is get married, to have that, that union and, and closeness. Maybe it's kids. Better kids. Love you, buddy. We put these things up and we say, if only I could have that. I will never be happy if I don't have that. And this is where Psalm 1611 had to really become real to my heart. Do I believe it? Do I believe that he has infinite pleasures at his right hand? Psalm 8411 is another the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing? What about the mountains, Lord? No good thing? Psalm 73, 26, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's my helping. He's my satisfaction. Psalm 63, 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. There's a metaphor I can get behind. I love the fat and rich food. My wife cuts all the best parts off of her steak and her pork chop, and I get to reach over, and I love that. It's so rich, and, and you have the, that fat and rich food, and you get to the point where I'm just so full, I don't want to look at another steak for a week or till tomorrow, um, but... 
but you're, you're satisfied. I can't handle anymore. Here's what those verses mean. For those who seek the Lord, for those who will live in passionate pursuit of Him through, through right worship, through right relationships, every good desire in your heart and recognize that every sinful desire comes out of a good desire that's been twisted. Every good desire in your heart will be fully and completely satisfied to the point of overflowing. God, I can't take anymore. By the glory of God in eternity. Do we believe that? Here's what God graciously opened my eyes to see. My desire to explore and behold beauty was put there by God on purpose. And he intends to fulfill it. I'm... I'm not going to get my fill. The, 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 the more I grow and think about these things, the mountains never actually quite do it. They get you close. They give you a taste. But there's no satisfaction in this world. But I will have an eternity of exploring and beholding the manifest glory of God for, for millions of millenniums to come. That desire was put there by God on purpose, and he intends to fulfill it. I just have to trust God on that day. There, there won't be even a passing thought of what I missed out on in, in, in climbing up and looking at oversized rocks in this broken temporary world. That's the kind of God who makes this command. Do not covet. The God who says, I can make good on my promises to satisfy you, to give you the joy and the fulfillment of every good desire of your heart. In himself. That's the, that's the secret of contentment that Paul points to in, in Philippians 4. It's in Christ that he can face hunger and, and need and, and nakedness. It's the glory of God that he's displaying in his law. It's all here. And yet this is just the tip of the iceberg. Because the, the old covenant that, that God made here with, through, through Moses and, and all the Old Testament, it, it's revealing who God is, but it's also pointing forward to something greater, a greater revelation, a fuller, brighter picture of who God is. And with the new covenant comes a revelation of God, not, not written down as, as Ten Commandments carved into blocks of stone, but lived out in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all of this. So let's just kind of wrap this all together. Seeing how each one of these commands points us forward to Jesus. How Jesus is the full display of the glory of God in all of these. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. Calls us to obey all authority because, because God is the God who demands and is worthy of all honor. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And look at Revelation 5. As the saints are gathered around the throne in heaven, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He's worthy. 
And so uh, Philippians 2 says, In the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is the visible display of the rightful worthiness of the authority of God. And Jesus is worthy of all honor, all respect, all praise. Sixth commandment says, you shall not murder because God is the God who gives and who loves life. John 1, 4, Jesus says, or sorry, it says of Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And of course, John 10, 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He is the gift of eternal life. Seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. Because God is the perfect God of faithfulness to his people. And Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise of God. He's the culmination of all of it. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to the glory of God. He's the proof of God's faithfulness. He's the evidence of every promise coming to fruition. And of course, Jesus loved his church so perfectly, this perfect example of a faithful husband loving his wife, the church, to the point of even laying down his life for her. Commandment 8 says you shall not steal because God is a God who gives generously. And here's the verse that's been blowing my mind all week. Ephesians 1, 7 to 8. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. We deserve death and condemnation and wrath for our sin and God from the riches of his mercy lavished his grace upon us in Jesus. He's so generous. Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness because the Lord is truth. And I love this picture. Jesus stands before Pilate and Pilate, like so many uh, pompously ignorant philosophers of our day, says, what is truth? And it's a rhetorical question. It's not supposed to be answered. He's saying, he's saying it as, as identifying the fact that no one can really know what the truth is. And Jesus answers him. John 18, 37, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I'm the truth. And and John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Finally, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet because God is the only thing that will satisfy our souls. Because God has given us every good thing that we need. And, and, And how does he give us every good thing? How are we confident that he will give us every good thing that we need? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is the God we worship. The God who is worthy of honor, the giver of life, the the faithful, generous, and true, the provider of satisfaction of our souls in Jesus. So yes, the law condemns us. As we judge ourselves by the glory of God, as we measure ourselves by that and ask, do I have any right to approach this God of glory? No. No, I am lost. I am helpless. I have no hope. 
no right to approach this God. But it also graciously points us to the goodness of God and the redemption that is in Jesus. And how by his death on the cross in our place, these Ten Commandments are are transformed into a glorious gift. Christ fulfilling every one of them completely on our behalf, dying in our place to pay the penalty that we've, where we've fallen short so that we can draw near to this amazing, unapproachable glory of God. Let's pray.